0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Welcome to the Minefield Club for books and other non book cultural artefacts and the discussion thereof. <laughs> okay, this is getting worse. Was that, I think that's what it was originally. Was it? I, that's Scott Stevens who just broke the fourth wall. It's very right. unprofessional of him, but that's what he's done. Waleed Ali is my name. This show is called The Minefield, but this is a particular instantiation of The Minefield. Are you happy with that yeah. word in that context? Yeah, instantiation
0: perfect. A bit heavy-handed. No, instantiation is good. Um, he- heavy-handed is okay sometimes. Sometimes, except, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. When it's deliberate? When it's deliberate, yeah. Heavy-handedness when it's not deliberate is bad. Oh, yeah. Certain. It's amazing how things can swing on intention in that way. Like, mm-hmm. bad jokes. A deliberate bad joke is a good joke. That's right. Often. A bad joke that's not deliberate is never a good joke. Yeah. Oh, is, never is too strong. But
0: this f- is one of those things, though, where I think proximity is so important. I think physicality is important. Oh. One of the things... I've been thinking a lot about it. The digital world... And the extent to which our interactions with one another are increasingly mediated by a very imprecise medium. For a mm. medium that lives on quantifying everything. Mm. The screens and the digital platforms that we engage with is incredibly unnuanced. It doesn't pick up no. the various things that bodies instinctively communicate. So, heavy-handedness with a little bit of a self-deprecating shrug. Mm. A bad joke. With that little slight glint in the eye <laughs> that says, we both know that this yeah, is bad. a bad joke, yeah. It's just, you know, there's something about physicality that communicates so much. And the way that we've stripped everything back to the barest, the rawest forms of communication, utterly without nuance. Yep. And only ever with posturing. Mm. Uh, I think that's um, served us Because that's very all badly. that's communicable. That's all that's communicable
1: In that now. situation. We still haven't got a name for this. It's getting to the point where I think we shouldn't. Okay. I think we commit to not having a name. For our book club yeah, that's not a book club. I'm happy with that. Yeah. So what have we done in this? We've done Succession. We kicked the year off with Succession. We then did Jane Austen's Emma. Emma that's right. Which exists in multiple forms. Yes. And we drew on all the forms. Yep. And then third, we did Queen's set at Live Aid in 1985. Yeah, that was something. Which was
0: riotous as fun. Mm. Um, this there is, is something. Uh, yeah, go on. I've been thinking a lot about this. And I like to see patterns, usually patterns that aren't there. Some of the earliest work that I did in philology and ancient poetics, you're looking for patterns all the time. Little either mnemonic things or the fact that the same cluster of consonants, even though they have no etymological root, they keep coming together. So when you speak this particular poem out loud, you end up discovering things the way that the tongue moves against the back of the teeth that you're like, okay, that's why it was done that way. So you end up seeing kind of poetic patterns. So I've been thinking a lot about our choice here. Today? About the choice of the four objects that we've done ah, okay. in this series, but not quite series. We haven't announced today's yet. We haven't. Which well, we have. So why did we choose Succession? Three series of a television show. It has a style of writing that I think reaches a literary quality that is undeniable. Mm-hmm. There's a or at way- least wants to. Or at least wants to. There is a web of references to Shakespeare, to W.G. Sevald, that that I think say that, okay, there's something a little bit highbrow here. But the characters are utterly beyond reach. They inhabit a world that is so far beyond the world that any of us inhabit. The fact that none of them seem really to have homes apart from their private jets. The fact that on a whim they can be at some luxury yacht in the Mediterranean. Mm. They inhabit a world that defies any attempt to empathize, which means then that the hard work of the show is to make us care about the characters. And the constant thing that we're moving in and out of is do I care? Don't I care? Is there something here that I can understand, that I can make sense of, that I can empathize with? But then you also realize that going back to Shakespeare's Richard III, royalty – The rarefied position that the uber-wealthy occupy, the leisure that they can enjoy, there's always been something about that that's been a central rhetorical device. They have a life world that is inaccessible to the rest of us so that Richard III, the only other example is really Hamlet, but the evil Richard III can draw the audience in to his own inner monologue in a way that no other character really can. So I think his elevation as a king is important to that. Jane Austen, she occupies a different rarefied world altogether from – Regency manor houses, the fact of the uh, relatively, for that time, opulent wealth that Emma Woodhouse herself inhabits, the parlor games that they engage in. All of these things are meant to say, okay, you're not meant to empathize with this. You're not meant to see yourself. These are not your people. These are not your people. Yeah.
1: But you know what both Austen's worlds and royalty have? Yeah. That succession doesn't. Yes. Those are worlds of extraordinary wealth and privilege with dignity. Yes. With refinement. And refinement. Succession has all these the are barbarians. Yeah, the refinements all stripped out. That's right. And so the fact they're American is very important, and that turns up in Succession, doesn't it? Where he talks about how he just was it the UK particularly, was it Europe generally, where he just describes it's, it's too soft.
0: It's too soft. Yeah, yeah. We're not doing the Succession. Well, joke. okay. Queen. Mm. Has there ever been a more utterly singular object than mm. that? I mean, what one are mean the, in that set or that band? I mean, the band, but that set. Yeah. The fact that Freddie is utterly singular. Mm. It is his, the singularity of his eroticism, the singularity of his voice. These are the things that mesmerize the crowd. And yet being able to say, oh, I, I could do that. I could do that. Okay, maybe you could, you know, play like Brian May, but nobody yeah. can sing like Freddie. So I think with each one of these objects, there's something that's mesmerizing, that's morally instructive. There's something that invites us and entices us even as it eludes our grasp. I think none of the objects, though— do that more than this one. Mm. So the film that we're talking about is Stanley Kramer's 1967 film, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. It's a weird choice. It's a choice that we owe inspiration. And we, of course, dedicate the show to your mother who suggested it. In <laughs> Like we do every show, mum. Like in, we do every show. In the first place. The film's astonishing. Uh, you watched it last night. First time
1: I've seen it. So I, I went in cold mm. and fresh and I just watched it. Last
0: night, and then that's it. That's, that's the sum total of what I know about it. There are all sorts of things that I am interested in gleaning from your yeah. reflections. Can I just lay out a little bit of... Go for I it. mean, again, one of the things we tried to do throughout this series is you don't need to know this background in order to reflect morally and meaningfully upon this. Which film. is why I that. I put myself in that position. Fabulous. Very
1: much the opposite of what happened with Queen. Okay. I could have gone and read about the film and what happened and what it won. And yep. I, I, I gather it won an Oscar. But I I chose not to. Okay. So
0: even the awards it won were controversial. Right. See, this is I don't know. Okay, but no, it's fine. So the film is from
2: 1967.
0: Mm. Ordinarily, I would say that the date doesn't matter. Oh, it matters. The date matters. So here we have a 1967 film about interracial marriage. It's set in San Francisco, which is important. We're going to come to that soon. Liberal Heartland. Okay. Liberal Heartland, yes. But in the very recently gentrified Oakland area. And when I say gentrified, uh, James Baldwin very famously said, you know, this whole film is taking place on Hunter's Point, which just had the Negroes urban renewalized right out of it. Right. So in other words, this is wealthy, this is white, this is liberal, this is progressive. There's a reference in the film to, there are only 12 Negroes in this city and I had to run into one of them. A 12%, I think. 12, uh, 12%, yep. sorry. Yep. So so I think there's something there's something about the location that is important. The fact that the setting of the film is close to Stokely Carmichael's headquarters in the of the Black Panther movement. I think there's something is there. it's deliberate? It's not missable. I don't see how how any ignorance could be, could be claimed. Oh, whoops. You know, you could have done Los Angeles. Yeah, okay. But the other thing that's interesting is this film takes place, this film is released three years after the Civil Rights Act, which was an important piece of legislation, but not a complete piece of legislation. It was two years after the Voting Rights Act which was a vital piece of legislation. I mean, this was the legislation that Martin Luther King Jr. had hung so much of his own activism on. So there are already important civil rights measures that had been achieved by this point. This It was released the same year that the Supreme Court handed down its decision in the case of Loving v. Virginia, whereby the Supreme Court ruled that laws in 16 states that made interracial marriage illegal was itself unconstitutional, according to the 14th Amendment. And that that legislation, that ruling was then codified uh, through a particular reading of the 14th Amendment uh, one year later in the second version of the Civil Rights Act. Mm. So... The the codification of which is important. Yes, it is. Because it means it's not
1: merely a judicial... Intervention. That's exactly right. It's a political right. and democratic. That's right. Which
0: distinguishes it from the abortion yep. cases where Perfect. Roe v. Wade never had that. Yep. So the film is balanced on a knife edge. You've got these things which have gone before. You've got other things which are coming. So you, there are things that are in the audience's mind as they're watching the film. The fact that there's a reference in the film to 16 states, 16 or 17 states in which... This couple, should they set foot in that state, would be regarded as criminals, mm-hmm. uh, John Prentice's father says at one point. That is very, very important. We should also say that the film is released months before the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., months before the riots that then follow, months before the resurgence of uh, the black Panthers and of the Black Power movement more generally, and one year before the law and order-based election of Richard Nixon in 1968. Mm-hmm. So the film takes place in this really, really unusual period. Some things have been achieved. Those things are by no means unanimous. And there's an extent to which, and again, one of the characters in the film says, even if it was outlawed, it's not going to be outlawed in the hearts of the yeah. people so of the states. 100 million people. would. Be, that's right. Yeah. That's right. It would have a problem. Yeah. So... It seems to me that the precariousness of the film, its moral intention, is appealing directly to the space, to the time period that the film occupies. It's trying to take something that is making its way into law, and it's trying to usher it into the hearts of people. So I think there's a self-consciously progressive intention behind the film. Oh, no doubt. Okay. All right, all right. Really, you think there would be a doubt about that? No, I don't think there's
1: any doubt about that. But the film is... So, so I would go so far as to say, and, and maybe this is just the problem of looking at it through current eyes. Sure. I would say that aspect of the film was... Too much? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's very heavily done, right? Like the way in which... I don't want to get too far into the film because I know you're setting background, but like when each parent, each What do we call them? They're not kids, are they? Mm -mm. (laughs) Each member of the couple, Mm. when their parents discover or or see the other member of the couple and the fact that they're not of the same race for the first time, the sort of level of shock, in some cases, I would say even verging on disgust, maybe that's too harsh. I think that's too harsh. Yeah, it is too harsh. But there's something more than just shock there. Yes, there is. I don't What's the word for this? Okay. I'm not going to tell you the word for it because I think we need to discover it together. Okay, okay. But anyway, that it's very heavily done. Hmm. The woman who's you know running the art gallery,
0: Hillary St Clair. Yeah, we're going to come to
1: her. her, the level to which she's scandalized by maybe scandal is the word. um, So she's scandalized by this the idea of this interracial couple. It's it's very like it's. it's You're You're saying that the film
0: is too didactic.
1: Yeah. So when you say, "Oh, there's a progressive." politics running through it it's like oh no no
0: it's not running through it it's i'm not saying there's a progressive politics i'm saying that the film itself has an overtly moral intent it is trying to do something that politics cannot politics can legislate politics Mm. can campaign politics can coerce this film is trying to do something different i think it's campaigning though the film is campaigning i think so i disagree Really, was that? Mm -hmm. Can I come to it? Okay, sure. So uh, let me just lay one other bit of background, which I think is kind of interesting. So, 1967, the choice of Sidney Poitier in the role of John Prentice is an astonishing choice. Sidney Poitier uh, starred in two award-winning films uh, in 1967. Uh, One was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. The other, In the Heat of the Night, uh, by Norman Jewison. It's an astonishing film set in Mississippi. But not set in Mississippi. Sidney Poitier refused to film in Mississippi or anywhere near Mississippi. And you hear some of the things that are said in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Uh, at one point, Matt Drayton, the patriarch, the father, played by Spencer Tracy, uh, he talks about he doesn't want these kids to have their skulls bashed in if they go to the South. Mm. So there's something, I mean, Sidney Poitier was terrified of the South and he would refuse uh, to go anywhere near it. So they ended up uh, filming in the heat of the night in southern Illinois in a place that could kind of pass for well, effectively a kind of cotton plantation. Sidney Poitier plays a role quite frequently of a, an inoffensive, palatable black man who is shackled to or who is otherwise bound up with a uh, either racist or slightly racist or at least deeply uncomfortable white person. Ooh. So he becomes the point of interface. In, in the heat of the night, uh, he is an accomplished Philadelphia detective who is working with uh, um, brazenly racist sheriff in Mississippi to solve a murder. And it's through the process of their interaction that the white sheriff becomes converted. That's the only word that Mm. can be used. And yet there are moments of genuine shock. So, for instance, there's one particular time... It's a scandal within the film, and Sidney Poitier made his involvement dependent upon this scene being kept in every instantiation of the film, every version of it, where uh, the two detectives are questioning a cotton plantation owner in Mississippi. Comes up to Virgil Briggs, slaps him. Sidney Poitier slaps him straight back. It was a scandalous, scandalous moment. And yet there was something about that that shattered, that broke this image of Poitier as the inoffensive, everyone's black man. Mm. The black man that you could not possibly have any objection to. The Obama before The Obama before, uh, the Obama, Obama. before yeah. Obama. Thank you. So Poitier was nominated for Best Actor for that film. Did not get it. His white co-star got it. Mm. Uh, in the heat of the night did win Best Picture, though, which mm. was interesting. Uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Well, he was nominated again for that film. He did not get it. Catherine Hepburn, who plays the matriarch. Who is incredible, she? She is incredible. I mean, I'm not
1: denying any of the political background, but just watching the performances, mm. they seem
0: correct. Yes. So there's a choice here. Oh, and um, William Rose, who wrote the screenplay, he mm. won the Academy Award as well. So there's something about the construction of the film. Set in San Francisco, not exactly an urban center of racial unrest. Let's just put it that yep. way. The film features- Sorry, but also
1: importantly, what comes through in the film, a place populated by people who think about themselves in a particular way. Yes. Go on. Well, that's a really strong theme of the father's-
0: Okay, nice.
1: Um, story, I mean, he, So he's a newspaper proprietor. Regarding- a
0: fighting liberal.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah.
0: And the priest who- Monsignor Ryan. Yeah. He's your classic post-Vatican II priest, doesn't yeah. take any doctrine- Quotes the Beatles, doesn't yeah. quote any papal encyclical, but uh, does the Beatles and and ends up uttering what Matt Drayton calls assaulting me with 300 platitudes. Yes, which he kind of admits is what you have in
1: this That's job, true. right? It's the provision of these platitudes. Yeah. And he's Irish, which I find really instantly makes him charming and likable. But he, I mean, he kind of castigates the father on this kind basis, of. right? He yeah. has the most morally savage lines yeah. in the entire. Yeah. Um, the presumption... That Joey has Joey being his daughter. Mm. That of course they'll have no problem with our relationship mm. because like never occurred to her mm. that there could be because that's who this guy is. So one of you know for me the first theme that emerges, and I I'm kind of surprised it just disappears from the mother like that in a way that I find found a bit unconvincing actually. But is it's one thing for them to proclaim this sort of presumably quite fashionable political positions, fashionable within their circles and in their communities. But once it becomes real to them, once it starts affecting their lives and invading their lives, they either struggle with them or they reject those Mm. positions outright. That seems to me a core theme of the movie Mm. and of the story arcs of those characters.
0: Mm. Mm. Here's the twist. Mm. What we witness, I think, is less a film and more a play. I agree. It has the dynamics of the play. It has the set use of a play. And the dialogue. And the dialogue of a play. Thank you. So there are various things that we are looking for, I think. And the way the sets are used, the way the dialogue is constructed, the way that characters are constantly paired off with one another. And we very, very rarely see three characters talking at the same time, much less four. Mm. And when there are four, it's very, very superficial. It's kind of perfunctory. Get me a drink. Yes, yes. And so you have people pairing off. Speaking, something happens, and then set change, one character goes out, another character comes in. So the use of sets, the use of locations, so you've got, the I mean, the main sets are the living room. We haven't actually introduced the characters yet. You have the central couple, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, who play Matt Drayton and Christine Drayton. She is a, an art gallery owner. He is a newspaper proprietor. They're not the central couple. They're the parents of the central couple. Of- they are the parents of the central couple, but everything that is morally consequential in the film hinges upon them. We yeah. want to come back to yes. that in a second. Okay. You have the secondary couple, who are John Prentice, a prodigiously accomplished thirty-seven-year-old doctor, played unimpeachable, by, unimpeachable, impeccable. If played, had a man of wax, yes, as uh, Shakespeare would have described, played by Sidney Poitier. Sure. Uh, and then you have um, you have Joanna Drayton, played by Catherine Houghton, or Joey who is 22 years old. 23. 23 years old. This, The age gap between them is more significant than I think many people would have initially thought. Mm-hmm. And then you have John Prentice's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Prentice, who fly up from Los Angeles midway through the film. And that then becomes, if you like, the central, it creates a different set of divisions. Uh, and then you have a series of subsidiary characters. I think there are only two Characters, two subsidiary characters that are in any way interesting. Mm. One, is, one is very interesting. One is Tilly, who is very interesting. Did you ever have the Jeffersons here? I don't know. I never watched it. Okay, the Jeffersons was a huge sitcom when I was growing up. He owns a Mr. Jefferson, George Jefferson owns a dry cleaning business. Uh, his wife is Isabel Sanford. Uh, she's Tilly, Matilda Binks. Yep. She is scandalously cast. We're going to have to come to her later. The casting scandalous? Or you mean the character scandal? The character, the fact that a maid, a housekeeper, she plays the role occupied by every black housekeeper slash maid slash slave. She's Mammy in Gone with the Wind. Yeah. She is... So you don't mean the casting scandalous? No, no, no. The fact that this actress, but she is a... Force of nature. She's mm. a larger than life. There's nothing genteel about her. No. At one point, she says to John Prentice, if you cause Joey any harm, I'll show you what black power is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there, there's something there. But she is wholly accommodated to the status quo. Mm. So there's something there that I think is interesting. The harshest words that are spoken in the film, in fact, are the words that she speaks yep. to John Prentice himself. So what's going on in the film, I think? is there is a moral confrontation that is being set up. It's set up artificially, I think. There is a moral conversion that is taking place. And because it's Spencer Tracy, the king of Hollywood, because it's Catherine Hepburn, perhaps the greatest actress ever, because these two Hollywood royalty are involved, we know that they're going to come good. Mm. There's never any doubt of what the conversion is going to be at the end, or whether one or the other gets there. Sidney Poitier is involved. So there's already the central moral issue has been so stripped back, has been made so uncomplicated. You could not have a problem with this man. Ooh. He is a philanthropist, he is a physician. He is well spoken. He is well mannered. He is dignified. He is demure. He is modest. He is deferential. Mm-hmm. You could not have. He's not a character from a Spike Lee film. In other words, yeah. there's no problem with him. You can't find an excuse other than that it he's black. It singles
1: out the issue of race, except for one thing, okay, which is the speed of the relationship. Okay, and I go. couldn't. Here help, we go. I couldn't help wonder whether this was a wise choice. Because if you made this not at all about an interracial relationship, and you had a daughter coming to her parents and saying, "I met this guy ten, ten days, days ago. ago. He's fifteen years old, and now older we're going to get married, and I'm going to fly to Geneva." With there are him. all sorts of prudential objections, I, and I need to know by tonight yeah. <laughs> whether you yeah. approve, and if you don't approve, I'm doing it anyway. I think most people would say it's entirely reasonable to say, "Hang on a second. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this cannot stand." You can't just do this. That's right, and so in that way, that makes the issue of race less
0: singular, even though the film ends up focusing overwhelmingly on that. And and, and in fact, the brevity of the relationship is largely unproblematic, and not only well, we, well sort of. Well, yeah. no, 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 no. I'm actually going to insist: There's the speed with which the decision has to be made. That's is- that's that that's right. Yeah. So the fact that they fly into San Francisco in the morning, John. Prentice initially is going to fly out at 1045 that night, and then through a crucial scene that takes place at two subsidiary locations, one restaurant and Mel's Drive-In Diner. Mm. I don't know if you noticed, but that's the pivotal moment in the film, those two adjoining subsidiary locations. It doesn't have anything to do with the house mm. or the sets or the scenes. or So the fact that things are compressed in such a way that you need to do go through an entire conversion experience— a kind of racial conversion experience. In an afternoon. In an afternoon, because first John is going to fly out, and then, as it turns out, Joey is also going to fly out. Both of them to Geneva. That adds an artificiality to the script, but it also means that things are compressed. This is why I say it feels more like a play than a Ooh. film. And so, and then there's one final thing, which I think is worth mentioning, that adds to the artificiality somewhat. So Spencer Tracy, I'm not sure if you if you realize this. He's one of my favorites. Spencer he's extraordinarily good. Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn are two. I, I should say, there is a moment at the end of the film, which I weep every time I see it, when he's delivering part of his final monologue. Catherine Hepburn, Chris Drayton, is looking at him. There's something about her eyes I want to come to in a second. And he says that, yes, the sexual passion might have faded, but the memory is there, unimpeachable, un- indelible. And he says, if they feel... John and Joey, if they feel a fraction of what I feel for her, then that's everything. Mm. The camera lingers on Chris Strait and Catherine Hepburn. Her eyes are huge, mm. blue, and the tears are real. There's no doubt the mm. tears are real. Three months after filming, uh, Spencer Tracy is dead. Mm. Um, they were lovers off screen. They were long collaborators on screen. One of the things I think that's very interesting about the film is that it all ends with, what will Matt Drayton say? Yeah. In the end, the opinion of John Prentice's father, who is equally objecting to the film, It's just irrelevant. It's irrelevant. I don't know what happened there. Okay, we need to talk about that. I think. All right. But we'll, ev- we'll do that with our guests. But everything hangs on what will Matt Drayton say, because yes. the thing that we've left out is that there are three narrative ploys that make the whole thing a little bit artificial, maybe a little bit too heavily pedagogical. Mm-hmm. One is the fact that they've only known each other 10 days, and so it's a whirlwind marriage. Two is the fact that the whole decision needs to be made. The whole case needs to be prosecuted right now in the space of one day. I think it's interesting to think about this is like a case. This is like a case. People are making their arguments. And at one point, uh, John Prentice even says to his parents as they're driving them home from the airport, you can make all your objections— and then I'll consider them. So it sounds almost judicial. Yes. And then the final he says, th- I've got eight hours of objections. Says, and then, well, then the final only got four, thing- so say them twice as fast. <laughs> that's right. And then the <laughs> final thing is what uh, John Prentice says to Matt Drayton and to Chris Drayton, that unless they agree mm. wholeheartedly, without qualification, he won't go through it. Mm. But that's an important moment because
1: it underscores his dignity, self-sacrifice, His deference to them, that's right.
0: Yeah, deference as well. But I think, again, that is underscored in a couple important ways. One is the fact that he defers to Matt Drayton in a way that he does not defer to his father. Mm. He's brutal to his father. The other is that, I don't know quite else how to say this, but I think it's important before we bring in our guests just to bring this particular point front and center. There's a moment in the film that's passed over easily. Uh, A delivery man. Mm. arrives with the additional steaks for that evening's dinner. By the way, the one room in the house that's never actually inhabited is the dining room. You can see it. That's true. To the very end, the last scene. And in fact, the last line of the film is, Tilly, when the hell are we having dinner? Yeah. So the dining room is looming. That has the function of the clock in the corners. That's the the ticking. Delivery boy comes, young man, young white boy, uh, arrives at the house. Dances his way up to the front door. Dances his (laughs) way. So you've got the radio playing in the van. Yeah. Dorothy, Who is Tilly's black, young, very young, offsider, who helps out, we hear, a couple days a week. She comes to the door and comes to the boy. She's very sexual. Mm -hmm. And there are a few moments in the film that I think are quite troubling. For instance, when John Prentice sees Dorothy. Who is that? What days does she work? So there's something there that I think is suggesting one of the great racial stereotypes, which is the hypersexuality of black men. So there's something... Yeah, I it up. Okay, but it's being signaled there. Okay. But I think it's being signaled in an ironic or a playful way. But then comes the moment where the white boy yeah. and the black girl go dancing off together unproblematically. Yeah. So what this raises is that sex is a problem in the film. John has to assure... Well, first, Joey assures her mum, and John has to assure Matt Drayton that they have not had sex together. Mm. Because one of the great scandals, of course, especially in the South, is the mythology, the image, the idea that these big black men are coming to take away your girls. On which false claims of rape were regularly made. Constantly. Just think of Emmett Till, for instance, some 12 years earlier. So the fact that this is an older man Mm. and a white girl is vitally important for the film. We have to get to, I guess, what do you want to say about the couple... The delivery boy. Anything else? Uh, It's that in the aesthetic of the film, the fact that it's a white boy and a black girl is morally Uh, unproblematic, which actually serves the role of heightening Mm. the moral problem of a black man and a white girl. I see what you're saying. Let's bring in our guest. Our guest is Ted Nanicelli. He's Senior Lecturer in Film and Television Studies at the University of Queensland. Ted, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield.
2: Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Let's start with something that Waleed and I haven't talked about, but for me is absolutely central eyes. <laughs> eyes in the film. I mean, singularly, Catherine Hepburn's eyes, which are wide open, damp, moist, and morally clear. Then you've got the eyes of the taxi driver when he's looking. By the way, there were death threats for Sidney Poitier and, um, and Catherine Houghton following the kissing scene Uh, in the back seat, the eyes of the taxi driver, the eyes of Hilary Sinclair, the contemptuous eyes. It seems to me that the eyes that have a big question mark next to them throughout the film are Matt Drayton's because, I mean, Spencer Tracy has these glorious eyes, but they're hidden behind thick black framed spectacles. The whole question of the film is, the moral significance of what Matt Drayton himself can see—whether he sees this couple through gracious, progressive moral eyes, or whether he himself ends up being blinded by prejudice—what do you think?
2: Yeah, Scott, I think I think you've really hit the nail on the head. I mean, the the film starts off very in a very kind of interesting way because we get two really uh, tight framings on fairly insignificant characters and it's precisely to emphasize how they're looking at John and Joey, right? So one, as you mentioned, is the cab driver. Um, so we get a very tight framing on him and we see these blue eyes kind of mm. looking at the mirror back at them. Uh, as you have what is, I believe, the first kind of romantic uh, interracial kiss. It on is the screen. first interracial kiss, in,
0: kiss on screen, that's
2: right. Yep. Um, and then when they get to the art gallery, um, so Hillary uh, is also framed in this kind of tight close-up, so we get an emphasis on the eyes. Um, I think you're also right about Matt to an extent, but I think it's slightly more complicated, right? You're right about the glasses, but there are moments which suggest that he he also has, and I should also say, I mean, the kind of... The the moral I wouldn't necessarily equate the the blue eyes with moral clarity right because the the cabbie and Hillary oh, that's Saint right. John that's right, right yeah. are, so they're they're clearly uh, have these big blue eyes um, but they are not able to kind of see um, John and Joey as people mm. right? no but this is right. where
0: Catherine Hepburn's eyes I think are singular and the fact that they are moist and open in yep. through the entire film I I don't mean blue means morally clear but. Her eyes specifically. But, but when
1: she's crying at the start, when she first meets John, that's not those don't strike me as tears of moral clarity. No, not but, true. This is the bit I found unconvincing. Was where along the line did she overcome this initial reaction, At what point, and and with what strength? Like, mm.
2: so I've got a take on this, right? But, which is that um, I think both the, the Catherine Hepburn character and the Spencer Tracy character know. Right, already what is morally right to do. And it is a matter of needing to have their vision clarified in a way that allows them to uh, act in the way that, that they already know they're supposed to. And I think the um, to get back to the eyes, right? So part of the question with Spencer Tracy is the glasses, when they're on, when they're off, um, when we can see right through them, which is sometimes... Um, And then when he's out kind of ruminating before he goes in to make his uh, speech where he gives his decision, right, the eyes are in these deep uh, attached shadows where we really can't see anything, right?
0: Until until that final moment, just before he goes back in the
2: living room, when the camera pans right in, he raises his face slightly so that his eyes suddenly become crystal clear. Yeah, so I, I forget if it's a dolly in or a zoom. I mean, there. I think it. I think it is a zoom, but you're right. There is this slight kind of move in to a very, very tight close up and he is looking just up and, uh, it's, you know, get this kind of low angle. So we see through uh, the glasses again, uh, I think the glasses, yes, glasses are yes. So we see through the glasses at that point, the, his blue eyes, and he's, he's made his decision. He knows what he's going to say. Um, I think... The, the art motif is really important here, um, especially for the Catherine Hepburn character, right? So it's a modernist art gallery. Mm. Uh, it's stuff that on the surface is not necessarily beautiful. That you don't necessarily see the value in uh, if you're just looking at the surface, right? So you have to look beneath the mm-hmm. surface like and really kind of understand what's going on to appreciate the substance of it. And I think the The suggestion is that she in part she comes to this faster because you know she knows how to do this right she's this is what she does for a living in some way, right um, And you know, I think Matt, as a newspaper man, is not so perceptually oriented he's more pragmatic, he's thinking more about arguments as you as you both pointed out. Um, he's thinking about it more as a kind of investigation where he's going to accumulate evidence and, you know, try to reason his way through this. And he's thinking about uh, consequences. He is. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. Yeah, and that's there's right. a very clear gender split. I mean,
1: the, the gender and the generational splits, I think, are very heavily done. Yes. And, um, and problematic. Yeah, possibly. I'd have to think more about that. I just think I, I just found them a bit, I don't know, unsubtle. But that's part of his whole argument is it's not about what I think. It's about the world that awaits you. Hmm. And what you're signing up for that you don't understand, and you—that is my wife and his mum—so the the women, you're not thinking about this. You don't understand that. You're basically being naive. So like this is a very—I mean, I suppose it underscores the point you're making, Ted, about him thinking about it through the context of arguments. But consequence is a major element for him
2: because of that, in a way that it's simply not for his wife. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as far as the the gender uh, issue goes, I mean, so this was a a kind of chief complaint. Of the the critics and scholars that see the film as not going far enough, like still being kind of politically retrograde because uh, it is not essentially it's it 's a kind of handoff right of a of a a young woman from one older man uh, to another older man mm-hmm. now i don 't and that 's not something I agree with, but um, I think you 've identified one of the problems that that people have with the film. Let's just pick up something here, though, that I think is kind of interesting
0: and a little bit troubling. I mean, the fact that both fathers, Mr. Prentice, Mr. Drayton, Matt Drayton, uh, are associated with logic, pragmatism, consequences. The women are almost immediately, as the film portrays it, overwhelmed by feeling. You could say that the same thing is reduplicated. And, and, and not just feeling, but sexual feeling, romantic, sentimentality. I see. I think there's a totally opposite reading to this. Okay. Hold off, though. That divide is reflected then in the relationship between Joey and John Prentice, that he Mm. is being more calculating and strategic. She is – everything's just wonderful. Mm. Um, So there's a problem there. But I think one of the ways that that problem – there's a problematic way that it manifests itself and there's an important way that it manifests itself. The problem, The problematic way that it manifests itself, I think, is the fact that the role is delegated to Monsignor Ryan – who says at one point to Matt Drayton, you know, you're thrashing about. He says you're a broken-down, phony old liberal who's come to -to face-to-face with his principles. So Monsignor Ryan is given the moral clarity and the verbal dexterity that Catherine Hepburn usually has in the previous films that she has done with Spencer Tracy. She is usually the one who is the match of Spencer Tracy at every point, at every moment, at every rhetorical turn. So the fact that she's cast, if you like, as a helpmeet, as someone who supports, has someone who stands alongside, just sort of gently urging him, gently nudging him along the way. The most brazen thing that she does is she says that when Joey turns against her father, I'll fight alongside of her.
1: That's not insignificant. No,
0: That's it- a massive moment of um,
1: declaring him so wrong on the issue that sh- she has to... Abandon his side, really. That's it's true. That, like, that's not insignificant. But it's and, only
0: significant to the extent to which she acquiesces and she plays a largely passive
1: role. Sure, but the other one that we're not, we haven't mentioned is Mrs Prentice's well, confrontation, right? And, I, was, I was about
2: to, yeah, That's so, right, so, that's what so, going to raise so, too. So
1: you so see, the way I read all this, and maybe Tilly complicates this, but the way I read this was the women in the film, Tilly aside, are uh, coded as enlightened. The men in the film are retrograde.
0: Yes, there's... With the exception of John Prentice. There's no. one twist, though. There's one twist, though. Uh, Mrs. Prentice, played by B. Richards, who incidentally has a very important role at the end of In the Heat of the Night. She's largely the same age as Sidney Poitier, and it's a highly eroticized. Right. So the fact that they use a younger woman in an older capacity... And you'd have to say, I don't know if you picked it up too, Ted, the sexual, not tension, but overtones, the holding of hands... Between Mrs. Prentice and John Prentice out on the terrace. Do, can we all note that the terrace is the place of enlightenment? Mm. Enlightenment yeah, doesn't a, happen in yeah. any other room in the house, but the terrace is the place where something well, like that happens. does happen though place? when Monsignor Ryan confronts? In the bedroom? Yeah. No. Go on, Ted.
2: Oh, so I was just oh. going to say I mean, <laughs> I was just going to say, I mean, I think that. Um, the, if you think about what you know ostensibly really gets Matt to realize what what the right thing to do is and what he has to do is right, it's ostensibly that conversation with Mrs. Prentice That's right. yeah. where he goes back uh, and thinks about what he would have felt right mm-hmm. He thinks about the passion that he would have felt. So I think there is the, and, sorry the, the, and he the, cites that decisively
1: if if he's right. issuing a judgment at the end that's the ratio decidendi of the decision. Perfect.
2: That's right. That's right. So he does he does put it in these kinds of rational terms at the end but the reason that he gives is actually being able to um you know it's that he's had uh, a realization of what this couple must be feeling, right? Mm-hmm. That yeah. their love for each other. And he, because he's in touch with his emotion at the end, he's able to to do the right thing. And the fact that he uses that
0: very careful sequence of verbs, what you two are, what you two have, and what you two feel. The fact that he puts the moral emphasis on feel, which is the direct reference to what Mrs. Prentice says. He says, the greatest tragedy would be for you not. To be married. So, So, stripping things back to the kind of singularity of this couple, not the fact that they are black and white, but the singularity of this couple as loving one another. It's actually something, I mean, James Baldwin hated the film, but there's actually something Baldwinian about this. It's not interracial marriage, generally speaking. It's the uh, the moral demand of this specific couple. But, well, except couple. that he's not opposed to interracial marriage,
1: Just generally not to speaking, right? So it has to be about this particular couple, because that's the only couple he that's actually true. has to deal with. I, mean, I think this is a... Go ahead, Wally. No, 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 you go, Ted.
2: I was going to say, I think this is very important, because this is, in a way, a kind of... The film is working on these same issues in a kind of meta-reflective level, right? It's, it's not appealing to the minds of the audience, right? It's not prosecuting an argument. Mm. It, it is giving us characters that are familiar, that are likable in part because of the star persona of, of Hepburn, Tracy, and Poitier in particular. And it is leading us on a kind of emotional journey Whereby you can't help but the you know but by the end of the film to be pulling for uh, the young couple and for Matt to make the right decision. Yeah, but the, I the, think sorry, if,
1: but Ted, this is why I find the reading that says, well, you know, the women were sort of dismissed as emotional and not clear thinking, and the men were the ones. A, they're invested with the power. That's true. Well, he was one one of them was, but B, they're the ones who are actually rationally coolly going. it. I just find that. Almost exactly wrong. The the moral correctness of this couple getting married is presumed in the film. That's right. As you say, it's not argued. The people who are on the side of that, the people of moral clarity, if you like, are female, Hmm. apart from the couple themselves. The people who are not on the side of that are men. The role that the men play in the film is largely- They're the impediments. To be the people that have to get out of the way- That's right. And to the extent that, you know, John Prentice even says to his father, we're basically waiting for you to die, right? And then he sort of says, (laughs) you're my father, I love you, et cetera. But that's a, I mean, it's a a very aggressive speech. Heightened by the fact that it's so out of character with everything else you
0: see of Prentice in the film. I I just think that in the end. There uh, is a problem there, though, Waleed. The fact that he is so deferential to Matt Drayton and that he is overbearing in turn to his father, that, this, that the generational conflict is sharpened to that point. Why can't you just get off my back? I Agree. owe you nothing. Yes. It's, an astonishing- it's an
1: astonishing thing to say, and agreed. But that's also, isn't this a common thing? Yes, it is. You're deferential towards other people's parents when you need to be, especially when something from them. That's right. You're not deferential to your own.
2: There's a whole thing there. But but, but, but there's a racial dimension too, right? Yes. So it's sort of like he, uh, John Prentiss expects... The resistance from Joey's parents, yeah, because they're white. But basically, I mean, without saying it, he's calling his father and Uncle Tom, right? Mm, and he right. said, right, he's saying that that's his right. father has so internalized the racial dynamics and prejudices of the country that you know he's the problem. But you know what's fascinating about that, looking through contemporary lenses,
1: is his whole argument in the end becomes an I don't see race argument. Mm. Right. You see you yourself, yourself as a colored man, I, I see myself, myself as a man. man. That's right. right. That's the that's the key statement in that
2: confrontation. It and is, but it, what's a little bit odd about that, right, is that that's kind of a 180 from where he starts. Yes, that's true, that's right. You right. mean in that so, conversation or you mean in the film? Uh, in the film, because in, when he starts, he leaves Joey out on the deck and he goes to the study and he tells Matt and um, Catherine Hepburn's character, Chris, uh, yeah. He sa- Chris, he says... I know we're going to have problems. Like, I, I'm aware of what it is, you know, to be uh, a black man in America, and I'm aware of, of the challenges that we're facing. True, but that's an argument about society.
1: That's not an argument about him. So he, he's saying, I don't see myself as a black man. I see myself as a man. I recognize that other people do, including you, Dad, and you're the problem,
2: and that's the problem. I see what you're saying, but I do... Th- I, I think that... Um, I guess part of what I, I take him to be saying at the start is, um, I mean, I think he's, he's aware that, the and this goes to the naivete of, of Joey, right? Is the, the colorblindness thing is a kind of fantasy that it's ideal. And, and this is, you know, here we get to, you know, what Dr. King says about it, right? It's a vision for the future. But if you think that there's a possibility of seeing people without color in 1967, like, you're just, you know, you're just naive. And in fact, I think part of the moral
0: naivety of the film is the idea this will not be an issue for the next generation. Mm -hmm. The issue, in other words, is primarily generational, and even within generational, it's primarily masculine and gendered. In Mm -hmm. other words, it comes down to pragmatism and rationality. Can I make reference, though, to two interesting, I think, problems in the film? Uh, By the way, we haven't said anything about this crucial little pair of adjoining scenes, one of Joey and John with their couple – or their friend in the restaurant. Um, We haven't said anything at all about the song, uh, Billy Hill's Glory of Love. We haven't spoken about Tilly enough. We have to talk about Tilly. Yeah, we have to talk about Tilly. Uh, So let me just say briefly, I I think what's interesting, one of the problems with Matt Drayton is moments happen in the film where he is confronted – and I think here what happens when he backs the car into the angry young man in Mel's drive-in. And he explodes with really what begins with a kind of a generational affront, mm. which becomes very, very quickly kind of racial. There are only 12% mm. of these people, and I have to run into well, one of them. That's his reaction at the end. Yeah. Uh, he engages in some kind of viciously anti-Catholic slurs against Monsignor Ryan, unless you don't have any, unless you have kids on that aren't on the record. Mm. Um, so there's something, as soon as anger takes hold, is that the true or is that the false? Mm, either way, it's condemned. Either way, it's it's condemned. I think that's important. The other thing that is worth kind of wondering, when I see Spencer Tracy with a gathering of people whom he's all told, shut the hell up and let me speak, is this a judge presiding over a courtroom? Or is this Agatha Christie's detective at the end of every Agatha Christie film, having accumulated the evidence, gathering everyone together and discovering the truth? Do you know what I think it is? I think it's, in his mind, both at
1: once. Yeah, interesting. And in everyone else's mind, the problem. Mm. Addressing the solution. And they're just waiting to see whether or not he's found the light. So in other words, nothing he says is persuading them. Yeah, that's that's right. None of that. It's purely about whether not he has arrived.
0: Which is why the decision he comes to has to be on his own. Yeah. It has to be on the terrace. Uh, Ted, what did you want
2: to say about Tilly? Oh, well, I mean, there's a lot of things to say about Tilly, but can I pick up on what you were just talking about? Mm -hmm. I mean, I I think uh, with Matt, that scene where he backs into the guy's car... I couldn't help but think forward to the Danny Aiello character in Mm. Do the Right Thing. Mm, That's right. Where where it's like someone, someone, uh, a a white, an older generation white man who in many ways is depicted as, if not being colorblind, at least being tolerant, uh, as not being a racist. But then things start to heat up and you see, perhaps because they've internalized things, or perhaps because it's specific to their character, uh, stuff starts to come out and you realise, well, you know, things are more complicated. So, yeah, I just thought that was a a kind of interesting parallel. Is Tilly part of that complication? Well, certainly. And look, I mean, I think the film is is schizophrenic. Yes, that's right. (laughs) In a a few different ways, right? And um, I really don't know what to make of Tilly in the sense that I think... The creators of the film, and I include Poitier here, not because he had the kind of authorial control that Kramer had, but certainly would have, given their relationship, would have been comfortable kind of, you know, speaking his mind about certain things. And I think Kramer was too smart to not see that he had introduced a horrible stereotype uh, of the Mammy figure. And the question is, well, why, right? So it's, if if you say he hasn't done this by accident, and then the question is, well, why is it there? Um, and I wonder if it's a kind of compromise. And again, I'm thinking about mm-hmm. the target audience, and I wonder if it is, you know, like, well, this is a character that is gonna assure certain segments of the audience that we're not totally upending the status quo, yeah. right?
1: Well, unless it was well, a critique, I mean, well, I
2: kind of it could saw, be viewed I, ironically. I saw
1: her as a critique. Did no, she, look, I,
0: right. I'm with Ted here. I, th- I think there are two disastrous accommodations that are made in the film. One is Tilly, which is essentially giving a white audience exactly what they want. There did, are some she
1: loses. There she, are, and it, yes, and it, and but there are some is,
0: black people that are against black power and that are largely okay with the status quo. That's the one thing. The other accommodation that's made that I think is problematic, and James Baldwin sharpens this to a razor where he says that, first of all, there's nothing offensive about John Prentice. He is so far beyond any comparable black man in such a role, both yep. in the way that he acts and the way that he's presented. Dear God, what hope does a college dropout have? Yeah. So what it licenses the prejudice against actually existing black Thank kids. you. Yep. But the other thing is, you two are free to marry whoever you want, as long as you leave the country at the end of dinner. In other words... Joey and John don't have to stay on the scene. They don't have to continue right. living there. It's an idea. It's a principle. But the consequences do not belong to them. Except the that they do talk about the consequences they will face. So at some point they're coming back or they're going to face those consequences. But it's a Teflon choice. It's mm-hmm. There's there's not enough friction in the decision. So if you take the film as a form of moral pedagogy that's trying to sharpen things to a particular point, is trying to bring a white audience to a particular moment of empathy, of realisation, and the importance of the singularity of love, then I think this is good. Succeeds, yeah. My question is, are too many sacrifices made and too many artificial ploys used in order to make that kind of... Yeah, I see that possible? argument.
1: My only problem
0: with it is, in
1: the end, what you would say is, what you want to create instead is a film that will actually not achieve any of the... Those that's days.
0: probably right, certainly so not in 1967.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's worth, it's worth saying here, just, you know, for a bit of context. I mean, this was, I believe, the second highest grossing film in the United States that's in 1967. Right. That's right. right. So, I mean, in some sense, yes, there were death threats um, against Poitiers as well as Kramer and perhaps Rose, too, I can't recall. But on the other hand, um, clearly a certain a large segment of the target audience was reached. And I think, I think that shouldn't be overlooked. Um, it was perhaps less favorably received by critics who I suppose were, were probably more inclined to think about the kinds of issues and, you know, sort of unsettling moments that, that we're discussing here. But certainly, you know, in terms of getting through to a target audience... Um, yeah. it, it was a resounding achievement. Now, whether it shaped anyone's moral views is a different question. Yeah,
1: we can't say those moral views have evolved, whether or not, right? what yeah. role this film plays in it. It's, it's uh,
0: but we can also say the number of black activists and black actors who found the film decisive in many respects. There's a, there's a line by Zadie Smith, one of my favorite authors that I've always quite adored. She says, the film is sentimental, mm. but the sentiment, political and personal, is true. And she says, there aren't many films about which that can mm. be said.
1: It's a good note on which to end, which sadly we must because uh, we've exhausted our time. Ted, it's been so great to have you. We could talk about this for yeah, hours. Yeah, we
2: could and, keep going for hours, uh, couldn't we? Thanks a well, you're,
1: you're a major part of the reason for that, so thank you. Ted Naticelli is a Senior Lecturer in Film and Television Studies at the University of Queensland. Our guest for this week's edition of The Mindfield, Not Quite a Book Club or whatever it is that I said at the start, uh, we looked at Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. That's our final one for the year, of course. We don't have time to do another one. We'll see whether or not we continue with this series the next year. I suspect we will. Um that's it for the Mindfield today. We'll see you next week. There, my name is Mark Fennell, and I'm sure you're digesting many big ideas after another episode of The Minefield, but I did just want to tell you about another podcast you might enjoy. It's my podcast. It's called Download This Show. Each week, we bring together an expert panel to unpack the biggest issues in the world of technology, media, and culture, from the boom and kind of bust of cryptocurrencies to the rise of electric cars to trying to work out just what on earth is going on inside Elon Musk's head at any given point in time we've got it all. So for all of your tech news, please download, download this show. You know, it's confusing. I get it. The show's called Download This Show. It's also kind of an instruction. Do so at your leisure. You'll find us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye.
2: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.